We're going to do some pretending this morning, and I hope that's okay with you. We're going to pretend there's two bands left in a national competition of the Battle of the Bands. Now, both groups sound exactly the same. The only real difference is that one is from Nebraska and the other is from Kansas. Who here, and if by some strange twist of fate we find ourselves on the judging panel, who here would vote for the band from Nebraska? Oh, there's a few people. Who would vote for the band from Kansas? Nebraska would win in this congregation. Now let's take it a step further. Let's say the band from Kansas is from Wichita, and the band from Nebraska is from Byron. Who would vote for the band from Nebraska? Boy, some people really don't like, oh, okay. We got the Kansas voting on Byron now. And who would vote for the band in Wichita? Just one person. There's got to be a stick in the mud. That would be me. <laughs> now this is just a, a silly example. But why would we vote for these different places? We would vote because somehow we identify with these groups. Whether it's we think that we might know the people. If they're playing from Byron, we probably do know that, or you probably would know them. But if they're from Wichita, you probably don't. Everyone loves a hometown hero. I'm not sure what about it makes it so appealing, if it's that you know the person or that if by some chance their fame and success rubs off on us slightly just because they're one of us, they're from our hometown. Or maybe we like to think that because they're one of us, we're one of them, and their fame and success we can claim as our own as well. I'm not sure what it is, but we all like a hometown hero story, don't we? In our passage this morning, Jesus goes back to visit his hometown, the place where his family is from, Nazareth, the place where Jesus grew up as a boy. Now, he's just beginning to become a bit of a celebrity. One would think his neighbors would be all excited to have him back in Nazareth, and that they would throw him over their shoulders and lot him around the city saying, hey, this is our guy, he's one of us. But that's not exactly how it all plays out. Luke records the event for us in Luke chapter 4, Verses 16 through 30. And the account tells of a prophet foretold, an entitled crowd, and a rejected Savior. Open your Bibles with me and please stand if you're able as I read Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16 through verse 30. Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. Reading in Jesus' name. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a widow, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray this morning that your word would do its work in our hearts and our lives today. Open our ears to hear the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first part of this passage tells us of a prophet foretold. In verse 23, it's kind of an awkward place to start this passage. It starts sort of in the middle of this story. So we went back to verse 16 to find the start of this story. And we see that Jesus is back in his hometown. He's doing what he usually did, what his habit was, what his custom was. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship, and he began to teach. And in verse 17, it says that he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up, and he finds a specific passage, and he begins to read this passage. He reads these words to the crowd gathered to worship that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There's a lot of information contained in those two verses, but I don't necessarily want to pick apart this verse right now. But I want to put you back in Nazareth in that day. Imagine with me that you are part of the crowd, and in walks Jesus. You've known about him for quite some time. You used to play together. He was always the rule follower. He was always the one who was listening to his parents, and he never snuck out past curfew. And now he's back, and he comes to the synagogue to worship alongside you, but also to teach. He's handed a scroll, and he reads this passage. And after reading this passage, verse 20 says that he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue are looking at Jesus, waiting to hear what he has to say. They're waiting to hear what Jesus has to say about this passage. What insight can he bring to them? What will he teach us about the prophet Isaiah? And just like that, he announces that he is the prophet that Isaiah was speaking of. He is the prophet that was foretold from way back when. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus explains to the synagogue in his hometown that he is the prophet they've been waiting for. They don't need to wait anymore. That he is the one who's been appointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is the one to announce the kingdom of God to them here in Nazareth and to pronounce that the kingdom of God is here in him crowd is excited, but they're not quite sure how to handle this information. The text says that all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? We know Jesus. 
How could this be? We've grown up with them. How could he be the prophet that we'd been waiting for? The text doesn't give the impression that the people don't believe what Jesus is saying. They just don't know how to process it. Jesus is the prophet that's been foretold from of old, the one they've been waiting for, and now he is here, and he's from Nazareth. He's one of them. What does this mean for them? Jesus isn't just a hometown hero. He's not just a hometown celebrity who is going throughout Israel, but he's a hometown prophet, and he's come to bring the good news and to release the captives. He's come to bring freedom to the people of Nazareth, and they're excited. Jesus continues to teach the crowd with words that don't win him any more followers, words that don't give him any more popularity. Naturally, the people wonder, how can they know that Jesus is a prophet? After all, they grew up with him. He is one of them. And here he is, this hometown hero, this long-awaited prophet. And he tells the crowd these words, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus cuts through to the feelings of this entitled crowd. He cuts right to the heart. They think that because he's one of them, because they're in Nazareth and now Jesus is back in his hometown, they're entitled to see these good works. He's done special things in Capernaum. What is he going to do here? What will he do now? It wasn't out of the ordinary to ask a prophet for a sign that they can know whether or not this prophet was true. This prophet was from the Lord. It happened all throughout the Old Testament. And here is Jesus saying, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Jesus brings up a proverb about identifying a doctor. Now, none of us would go to a doctor who deals with, let's say, for instance, allergies, if this doctor, every time you go and visit him, is always blowing his nose and sniffling because he doesn't have his allergies under control. We wouldn't do that, would we? Because this doctor doesn't know how to heal himself. We have proverbs like this and ideas like this around still today. I was at a restaurant one time where all the waiters and waitresses had this saying on the back of their shirts, never trust a skinny cook. And if you're wondering how the food at that place was, I'll give you the name and I'll let you guess. Fat Nats. It was delicious, by the way. It was good. But getting back to the text, Jesus tells the crowd that they'll be asking for signs. They'll ask him to show some signs for them because they did, he did it in Capernaum. Now that he's in his hometown, what will he do to show everyone, all these people that he had grown up with, that he was the prophet who he said he was? His reputation is beginning to go around. In Mark chapter 1, in Capernaum, we read that he cast out a demon, that he healed Simon's mother-in-law. And in Mark 1, 34, he says that many who were ill with various diseases and he cast out many demons. The work of Jesus is spreading throughout the land and many people know about him. In Mark chapter 2, we read that he forgives a man's sin who happened to be paralyzed. And not only did he forgive his sins, but he healed his legs as well. The crowds at Nazareth were anxious to see what kind of signs Jesus would do among them. Surely he'd do greater things here in his hometown. What's Jesus going to do? And they wait. But Jesus continues on. 
And rather than telling them what sign he's going to do for them so that they might believe that Jesus is the prophet he says he is, Jesus tells them of two other prophets to Israel. He tells them of Elijah and Elisha, both of whom were prophets to Israel. And he tells them of the works that they had done, of miracles that they had done. Of Elijah, while there was a famine in the land for three and a half years, where did he go? There were plenty of people who were struggling to make ends meet in Israel. But Elijah isn't sent to one of them. He's sent to a Gentile. He's sent to a widow in Zarephath. And he makes sure that her oil and flour doesn't run out until after the rains come back again. And then there's Elisha, who's not sent to another Israelite, but he's sent again to another Gentile, to Naaman the Syrian. There were plenty of lepers in Israel at this time, but he doesn't heal an Israelite. He goes and he heals a Gentile. God's grace extends to them as well. And instantly, the crowd gets the implication of what Jesus is saying. God's grace isn't received because of any specific nationality or any outside works. Jesus isn't coming just for us, just for Nazareth. He's not just our guy. He doesn't come to, say, to give us any special privileges just because we have this external connection God doesn't owe his grace to anyone, not even the people Jesus grew up with. And the truth is that no one deserves his grace. Not the Israelites in the time of Elijah and Elisha. They didn't deserve to be healed or to have their food not run out. Not the Nazarenes in the time of Jesus. They didn't deserve any special privileges or any more signs that then were given in Capernaum. And not even the dear old saints who've dedicated their lives to service in the church. They don't deserve God's grace. No one deserves his grace. Instead, everyone who's ever walked this earth deserves the same thing. As Paul tells us, the wages of sin is death. And as each one of us identifies here today as a sinner, and if we don't identify ourselves as sinners, we're lying to ourselves, and therefore we are still sinners. As each one of us are sinners, the wages that we earn, what we deserve, is death. Physical and spiritual separation from God for all eternity. The crowd caught what Jesus was saying that day. And it didn't go over well. Just like this idea of God's grace being extended to all people doesn't sit well with some of us, myself included. Do we realize that we are no more deserving than people who are gathering together this morning in more liberal denominations? We're no more deserving of God's grace. Do we realize that we are no more deserving of the claims to God's grace than jihadists who are persecuting Christians on the other end of the world? Do we realize that we are no more deserving of God's mercy and grace than pedophiles in prison? We don't deserve God's grace because each one of us are sinners. Well, the very thought of ourselves identifying ourselves with them or with those kinds of people is repulsive to some, and it makes our blood kind of boil because we want to separate ourselves as much as we can from those types of people. But it forces us to take our sin seriously. It forces us not to take it lightly, but to acknowledge it for what it is, sin, rather than deceiving ourselves into thinking that our sin is somehow different, that our sin is somehow more natural or more okay in God's sight, that it's not as bad, that it's not as damning in God's sight. We acknowledge that it is 
just as evil and wicked and repulsive in God's sight. And we don't deserve God's grace. It's not hard to imagine why the crowd that day got so angry at Jesus. They thought that they were somehow more deserving of Jesus' good works than others because they had this external connection. They thought that this connection to Jesus might gain them some special privileges or special blessings. And a lot of times we think the same things as well. Whether we grew up going to church and so we think that for some reason that entitles us to more of God's grace, it doesn't. Sadly, they were mistaken, and sadly, we too find ourselves mistaken. But the most saddening thing, however, is what they did with Jesus. They rejected the Savior. Here's Jesus, who's come to announce that he is bringing good news, release to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the Lord's favor upon the people. And did the people want it? By their actions, we see they don't want it, not at the current cost, not when it will cost them their pride, not when it will cost them to honestly take into account their sin and to realize that I don't need God's grace. I don't, or sorry, excuse me, I need God's grace. I don't deserve God's grace any more than anyone else. And if we aren't willing to acknowledge our sin and repent of it, there is only one other alternative And verses 28 through 29 gives us a glimpse of what that alternative is. It gives us a glimpse at our natural human condition, how we tend to take it when people point out to us our sin, when people point out to us that we need God's grace. It says this, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. The only other alternative is to destroy whoever or whatever it is that is pointing out our sin to us. Whether it just means getting rid of that person who says, this isn't right, you shouldn't do this. Whether it means closing yourself to God's word which says this is sin. Or whether it means just throwing out that passage and saying, that doesn't apply to me. We need to acknowledge our sin. Not just get rid of the messenger that tells us we are sinners in need of God's grace. But here's Jesus, who literally comes to this town of Nazareth, who comes to these people who he grew up with, who he had lived amongst for many years, to announce that he has come to save them, that he has come to bring release to them. And how do the people respond? They run him out of the synagogue, and they literally try to kill him. And on the Sabbath, nonetheless, they were asking for a sign, and Jesus doesn't give them any sign until he reaches the edge of the cliff. So see that this picture here. They take Jesus out of the synagogue. They run him up to the edge of this cliff. So Jesus has nowhere to go but down the cliff. They're trying to get rid of him that way, crowding him to the edge of the cliff. And what does verse 30 say in the text? Jesus, passing through their midst, he went his way. I don't know if any of you have been around an angry mob before, but it's not easy to just pacify him like that. Jesus couldn't put on some disguise and hide himself amongst this crowd. They were out to get one person and they surrounded him. Jesus didn't say, look, there's a deer and have everyone look over there so he could run away. He couldn't do, well, he could do that. He's God, but they wouldn't fall for it. Jesus just walked right through 
the crowd. This angry mob who was ready to kill Jesus, who was out for blood, and he just walks right on through him. The only way you can describe that is miraculous. Jesus gave them the sign that they were looking for. And they're standing around at the top of this hill, arguing with one another, angry, wondering what happened to Jesus. Where is he? Is he down there? Did we get rid of him? And he's nowhere to be found with no trace. And Jesus just keeps right on walking by. They had rejected, they had rejected Jesus, and so he left. Jesus didn't leave them because he rejected them. Jesus left because he, they rejected him. And there were other people who were captive. There were other people who were blind, other people who were deaf, other people who were lame that needed this message of salvation. And Jesus is going to go bring that message to them. He's a savior not only of the people of Nazareth, but the savior of the world. And how Jesus would proclaim this release, how Jesus would accomplish this release, this setting free, ironically, would be by ignoring the crowds of his own countrymen who said, who said words that are pretty similar to what he said in verse 23, physician, heal yourself. Ignoring the angry crowds saying, he saved others, let him save himself and come down from the cross. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. There's that proverb that Jesus said, no doubt you will say this to me. And did Jesus listen to them? No, he had more important things to do. He had more important things as in dying for their sins and saving them through his death on the cross. And that was how he proved that he was the Christ, the chosen one of God, not by coming off. The releasing of the captives, this good news that he came to preach, was that he came to save sinners, wherever they might be, whoever they might be. That he came to be the savior of the world, not just of one people group, but the savior of all people. As John writes down for us, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in him. But as many has received him, he's not just limiting himself for one people group. Jesus came for all people to save all people from their sin. Jesus didn't go to Nazareth that day because they were his hometown crowd and they deserved a special visit from Jesus. Jesus went to Nazareth that day because they were sinners in need of a Savior. And he came to proclaim that he was the Savior they needed. Jesus proclaims forgiveness of sins and salvation to you today, not because you deserve it or have earned it in any way, but simply because you are a sinner in need of God's grace, in need of a Savior. And Christ in his grace and mercy comes to us through his word. And the question that is left for us is, do we demand that he show us a sign before we believe? Will we hold on to the idea that for whatever reason God owes us this forgiveness? That, God, I got myself out of bed this morning to come here, so I, you deserve to give me these things. You have to give me these things. Or do we come to Christ humbly, admitting, Father, I need your grace. I can't do this on my own. I am a sinner, and I can't cleanse myself. I need you to cleanse me. Do we recognize that as much as we don't like to admit it, our sin puts us in need of God's grace and mercy just as much as everyone else? Just like the people of Nazareth on that day, you and I need 
a Savior, to proclaim the good news to us, that God in Christ has come to us. And praise be to God that through his word he comes to us and proclaims to you that he has come to save you. Accept this message. Receive him and believe in this prophet who is foretold from of old. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for not waiting for us to get our act together to come to us, but coming to us while we were yet sinners, for revealing to us your Son, your love, your grace and mercy, your kindness, your will for us is that we be saved through what Christ has done. Jesus, thank you for not giving in to the crowds that day, for not coming down from the cross, but going through that death so that we might be saved, for rising again as well so that we might be raised to newness of life. We thank you and we praise you. Father, we pray for those who are still trying to walk through this life on their own, who don't yet acknowledge that they need your grace and your mercy. Father, reveal yourself to them and save them, Father, from their sins. We thank you, Lord, that you've come to proclaim this message to us. Though we are undeserving, we accept it, we receive it. We rejoice, Jesus, that you are our Savior, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.